0: Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. <laughs> our Declaration of Independence says that all men are created equal, and that sort of trips off our tongues as Americans because we memorize this as school children. and maybe it's time to go back and rethink that.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. Today with me, somebody that knows the Austin Institute for Family and Culture very well, Dr. Kevin Stewart.
0: Hi, great to be back. Great
1: to have you back once more. Not the last one, though. Dr. Stewart or Kevin. I'll call you Kevin this time. Can I? Okay, great. So, Kevin, you accepted today to... Tell us something about the seminar, very well-attended seminar that you just hosted for some of the students here at UT, some of the local residents, and people that followed it online on The Great Divides. So, as an introduction, how would you describe for our online audience this seminar that you decided to offer?
0: Yeah, so the theme for our programming this semester is The Great Divides, and this seminar is really my own time thinking about that theme. And we came upon that theme in the broadest sense because following the election of last year and the all the events of last year, the pandemic, the protests, the election, all of the things that have happened in 2020 was one of the craziest years of my life for sure. The country was seeming more divided than ever, or at least if not ever, because that's pretty big. We were pretty divided in the 1850s maybe more divided than at any time since the 1850s or perhaps the late 1960s, early 1970s, when the country was also very divided. And it seemed worthy to give some thought as to take stock, to take measure of exactly what is going on here. If we seem more divided, first of all, are we? And if so, what are the causes? Why? In what areas? And I didn't pretend, I mean, an exhaustive list of that might be years of study, but I wanted to pick out in my own mind four areas where the divides seem pronounced. And we could start to get a sense of the nature of what's dividing us, the ways in which Americans are divided. Some of it is a physical divide, and some of it is a disagreement. So not all the divides are differences of opinion. Some of them are more structural than that. Mm. And some of them are very deep divisions of opinion.
1: Since you mentioned it, let me just immediately follow up. You say Four big areas, four big, and their differences, yes. But like, what would these four areas be?
0: Yes, yeah, so I'll go through them. The four are first, or one, the big sort. Two, the contested status of liberalism on both the left and the right. Three, 1619 versus 1776, which is a question about race and racial reconciliation and where the resources lie for racial progress. And the fourth is the thorny issue of God. So the first of those is the big sort. I took this theme from the title of a book published, I think it was 2006, so it's been a while, 15-year-old book, but prescient in many ways. So the author, Bill Bishop, who actually lives here in Austin, which is really interesting. Will so we invite quote. him for our next podcast? We should. We should talk to him about what he thinks 15 mm-hmm. years after his yeah, book was that published. that would be interesting. And the big sort really focuses on putting together two two phenomena that are largely kept apart, but Bishop saw working together, and I think very accurately and prophetically saw working together. The first of those phenomena is the geographic sorting of Americans, and he used party as a proxy. And what that means is that areas where Republicans are a majority have been getting, for the last half century, more Republican. And areas that are Democratic majority have been getting, over the last half century, more Democratic. So we are sorting ourselves. Now that's just a handle, an easy tag, for actually a whole host of ways, it turns out, that we're sorting ourselves. So it used to be the case that, before the era of the automobile, rich people lived near poor people, Educated people live near uneducated people. Professional class people live near trade and working class people. Protestants live near Catholics, and they all live near each other because they had to, right? You couldn't be very far from the critical resources that a civilization, a town, or a city would offer. So the difference between the richest and the poorest person transportation-wise was whether they had a horse or not, you know, 100-plus years ago. And so… People also tended to die within just a few miles of where they were born. So chances are the typical life over a century ago was you were born in some place, you matriculated into the career path that your family typically matriculated into. So if you were a farming family, you were probably going to be a farmer. If you grew up around blacksmiths, you were probably going to be a blacksmith, et cetera, et cetera, right? You had a fairly narrow range of career options. You had a fairly narrow range of marriage options mostly in the town where you were. And not that many people moved very far.
1: If I may, before we move to the yeah. other
0: three areas
1: and, and continuing on this big story, assuming that our audience might be young, so people listening to this podcast are in their early 20s, mm-hmm. and they might have only the experience of having lived near people that are exactly like them. So my question is just like, maybe you're just like a little older than them, early 40s, if we may yeah. disclose that. Do you have a memory of things being at least a little different in terms of the geographic divisions?
0: That's a great question. So I think you can see, I'll answer it in a couple of ways, one directly and one indirectly. The indirect way is that I live in a small town just outside of Austin. And in this old, it's an old farming town. The church we go to has been there for 150 years. So you can see in the very architecture of the town what I'm talking about. Because we live in a very middle-class, always was a middle-class home, built as a middle-class home, little craftsman-style house. But within the line of sight, I can sit on my back porch and see a Victorian mansion. I can also see a little bungalow for a working-class person. So middle-class, working-class, super wealthy, all living within line of sight of one another, literal line of sight. I can see their houses from mine. So that depicts a very different time. In my own life, in my own memory, I can remember when it wouldn't have been that weird to be friends with someone in a different political party. When it wouldn't be that weird for a married couple to vote differently in an election. These days that by and large doesn't does not happen, at least not very often as a trend. So things were very different not So they were very different a long time ago, but they were different not so long ago. Would the example of your little town now be one where you are
1: actually looking if the big sort will happen? Like, will that be a town populated by the same sort of people uh, or not? Like, can you make a prediction also of what could happen?
0: Yeah, Austin is growing so rapidly and the land values are increasing in our town. So probably some of the same... Dynamics that have been perfected or completed in other parts of the country will eventually get our town, too. But for now, it's nice to know people who are very different and be friends with and go to church with people who are very different from ourselves. I think it's one of the ironies of our age which prizes so highly diversity That our lives are actually becoming increasingly less diverse, increasingly less diverse, even as we prioritize diversity in many aspects of hiring and education and things like that. And Bishop makes clear kind of part of what's going on here. And so you have this geographical sorting where people can move around more now and they can choose many more people, certainly not everyone, but many more people now are dying farther from where they were born than they used to. And so they're choosing where they live. And it's not crazy that people choose to live somewhere where they feel like they fit in, right? So it's not nefarious, really. It's not a malign thing that they're doing intentionally. It's not like they only want to talk to people who agree with them. So it starts out innocent in that people just feel more comfortable in a place where people are more like them. And this is very natural and very human. But what happens is as more and more people do that, and we're more and more free to move, it purifies a place in the sense that it homogenizes the place, right? The place becomes less mixed, less diverse, and more monochromatic in every sense, right? Racially, religiously, income, education, party identification, ideology, ethnic background, all of these things. Our neighborhoods are becoming more and more homogeneous. Now, that's one trend that's troublesome enough You
1: say troublesome because this leads to extremization of opinions or?
0: Yeah, I do think most of us have the experience of having been in a room where not everyone agrees with us. And you still say what you think, but you might change your tone a little bit. You might choose your words a little more diplomatically. And so life in general forced you to do that in previous times in ways that life now doesn't. And so chances are most people listening to this podcast don't know anyone or very few people who voted differently than they did did in the fall. Right. And yet it was a very divided country in the election. So there were lots. However you voted, there were... Dozens of millions of Americans who voted differently from you, however you voted. Um, So that's one thing. You add the second thing, and that's when it becomes a real problem. The second thing that Bishop noted was that when people are in groups that are more homogeneous, the tendency is to shift the median view and the mean view, so the normal view in the group starts to become a more extreme version of itself. So here he's pairing geography with social psychology. And so the social psychology tells us that if we have a group of, say, conservatives, the middle opinion of that group will begin to shift right as the group becomes more and more conservative. People will gravitate toward a more extreme view as the middle view. And so when you pair those two things, where more of the country is becoming more homogeneous and more homogeneity of a group tends that group toward more extreme views, you start to see some explanatory power here for what is going on in a society where it feels like our politics has become more highly polarized. It has. It has become more polarized. And while this isn't, you know, no one explanation is going to explain everything, I think this has a lot to do with what we're seeing. Especially
1: the parallel with the square that is not the public square, but the Facebook square and having the same opinion being presented to you. You know, if you're a Democrat, you're going to read more that supports what you think. And then this psychology, the social psychology that you were mentioning applies to that as well. So that being surrounded by the same kind of opinions, you're going to tend to shift
0: Absolutely. So yeah, you add to it a media environment where instead of everyone watching the same nightly news broadcast, right? When I was a kid, Tom Brokaw was the big newsman. Most people watched that at night. So there was a kind of baseline of middle of the road news consumption. Now it's highly particularized. And our social media environment, there are two kinds of views that social media will put in front of you. One just reinforces your own view. And the other provokes you because what the social media engineers want is for you to stay engaged with the app. And there are two really good ways to get you to do that. One is to amplify, like, yeah, right, amplify what you already thought. The other is the opposite, right, to provoke a response from you. Facebook in particular seems to be designed, if you look at your newsfeed and feel irritated, it's because Facebook is going to put more of the posts of your friends Whose views will irritate you enough for you to respond, but not so much that you defriend them and quit altogether. That's yeah,
1: so it's irritation. So guys, it's not your personality, it's irritation by design. By so design. just step out of Facebook for a while or Instagram and maybe and see if things change that might tell you you know, something more about your personality and being prone to aggressive modes or not. I think we should move to the other three sure.
0: big divides, right? Sure. So this was the geographic sort of like movement. The second major division point is the contested status of liberalism. And what I mean by that is everything settled within the two major political parties has become unsettled. And both of them had arrived at, this is a contestable hypothesis or contestable description, but the two parties were characterized by a conservative liberalism which was closer to classical liberalism or took classical liberalism as its inspiration in the republican party and a more progressive liberalism which took more of the progressive movement as its inspiration in the democratic party but there was a kind of settlement that the range of political views that governed the country were bounded by these two kinds of liberalism in both parties right now that settlement is contested. It happened first in the Republican Party, which is what the chaos of the 2015 and 2016 primaries, hmm. presidential primaries, were all about. And we saw it very much happening in the Democratic Party in the 2020.
1: Yeah, in two nutshells. What is the division on the right and what is the division on the left?
0: right? So the division on the right, the contested status of liberalism there, is about whether Really is about libertarian economics, right? Mm -hmm. That's the key point of division. So free market fundamentalism, it can be pejoratively called, you know, whether the free market approach is always right, whether it's an in-principle commitment or whether it serves some other end. So there's been a reemergence of conversation about the common good. And that we like
1: the common good here. We do like
0: the common good here and that the market was made for man, not man for the market. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you have to violate these free trade assumptions in order to advance the I mean, this is a friendly presentation of it. Right. But if you have to violate the free market orthodoxy in order to advance the good of the country, then you do that. Right. Even though free market economics would tell you it doesn't matter if your trading partner is not playing by the rules of free trade you'll still be better off with free trade. The thing is, people just don't buy it, right? That's the thing is, for a long time, from Reagan on forward, the Republican Party was committed to that view and they bought it and it was just a normal view among politicians and the electorate isn't buying it anymore and so the politicians are changing their tune on it. And so you have politicians like, you have elected officials like Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio talking about, uh, talking in very different ways than they would have even 10 years ago.
1: Could it be, Kevin, that maybe one of the reasons why people didn't see in the past the need to limit the free market is that there were some virtues that people had, like things that they thought unthinkable and that you need not need to have rules on those. You would never, you know, put a price on a life for real. And some things that, you know, that things that are not taken for granted anymore.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you can see this to stay on the example of trade. You can see this in that both The Democratic Party and the Republican Party agreed that bringing China into the World Trade Organization would tend to westernize China, would make them more decent, would make them more democratic, would make them respect the rule of law, would make them less of a menace. And of course, I think part of what's going on with the destabilization of liberalism is that that experiment has turned out disastrously. The opposite happened. The opposite happened in every single case, right? It has given China the imprimatur of the World Trade Organization and decent societies, and they've had to do none of the work to earn it. In a nutshell, the division on the left? Yeah, I think the division on the left then is between more big tech type libertarian on economics or corporate on economics, so a Mike Bloomberg, Hillary Clinton- type of way of moving. And then the rise of Bernie Sanders and the squad and much more aggressively social democratic people. The Soviet Union's been gone since 89. And so socialist isn't the bad word Mm -hmm. that it was. I mean, for people who don't remember, if you were labeled a socialist in the 80s or 90s, it was absolutely a non-starter. Absolutely non-starter in both parties. But it's not so. But non starters—you mean you would not get a job? You well, you certainly would not get elected Hmm. with that proclaiming that outside of a very few, you know, outside of maybe Berkeley, California, Hmm. right? Some very odd, some very odd boutique sorts of places. But for most of America, that would have been absolutely a non-starter.
1: Okay, so the problem now there on that divide, as far as I understand, is that people don't really know where they stand. Like neither on the right nor on the left. Is that like the lack of? You wrote something that was about the dead consensus.
0: Yeah. So my part of that fight, because I'm right of center myself, is sorting out that within the Republican Party or right of center. And so, yeah, this Reagan consensus is I signed on to the statement that this Reagan consensus is dead and we're not going back. Doesn't have to be all bad. I think there are ways. That people are beginning to move that will be a great improvement. So after the very unsuccessful Republican cycle in 2012, there was some soul searching in Washington, D.C. on the part of the Republican Party. And they produced a report that suggested now rather humorously that what the GOP needed to become, and we've all heard this for a long time, was the party of fiscally conservative and socially liberal the trouble with that, as the 2016 election revealed, is that there are no voters in that quadrant. That when you divide the electorate along liberal to conservative on economic matters, and then liberal to conservative on, you know, liberal to conservative on economic matters on one axis, and then liberal to conservative on social matters on the other, there are way more voters in the quadrant that is fiscally liberal, so they'd be happy with big government programs, but are socially conservative, so they don't want mass immigration. They're not fans of abortion. They like traditional marriage. Like and they
1: love homeschooling. And they, Yeah. I
0: mean, there are lots more people in that quadrant than there are in the libertarian quadrant. Libertarianism is effectively a dead end. Yeah.
1: Interesting discussions on those two fields, especially understanding where socialism is going.
0: The third? The third. So, you know, not satisfied with those two controversies. of uh, <laughs> As if we, it wasn't enough. Right. We have the third. Which is perhaps the thorniest matter in American history, and even into our present, and that is the issue of race.
1: The sixteen nineteen sixteen nineteen
0: project. Maybe
1: if anybody in our audience doesn't know what the sixteen nineteen project is,
0: yeah. So two years ago, the New York Times released a series of pieces as part of a project called the sixteen nineteen project, which sought, in effect, to refound the country intellectually not in 1776, but in 1619. And what happened particularly in August of 1619 was the first ship carrying slaves came ashore. So the argument was in a nutshell that slavery was in the DNA, and that's that's a quote, in the DNA of America, that the founding of America was originally sinful, right? As I said in the seminar about this, underlying a and at times complex and really interesting argument and series of pieces, is really a very simple syllogism. And that is that racism is bad. America is fundamentally racist. Therefore, America is bad. The conclusion is unavoidable if premises are accurate. And that's exactly what I would say those, the premises were. They often wanted, if you read the pieces, you won't see that conclusion stated as baldly as I just did, So they want to backpedal a a little bit away from that conclusion, but the conclusion is definitely there. And so part of what's dividing the country here then is whether and to what extent the resources for the racial progress we still need to make, that we have made and still need to make, come from within a, a further unfolding of the principles of the regime or whether they need to be imposed from outside.
1: When you say imposed from the outside, you mean the country would need to be refounded on different principles and values, different from the Declaration of Independence?
0: Right. So that's the 1776 part is whether the resources of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States are sufficient moral and intellectual resources from which to make additional racial progress. And... I side pretty squarely with the 1776 folks. I think as mixed as our history is and I would never downplay how the horrors, right, the sheer horrors that have been delivered and visited upon black people in the history of this country. Nor would I downplay the part that they and others who think with them, the part that they played in making progress from that. I would not I would not undersell how different things are now than they once were and how much better things have been and the role that our fundamental commitments in our country have played in that. Namely, that our Declaration of Independence says that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. It's not as though they didn't know how scandalous what they were writing was when they wrote that, how scandalously they failed to live up to that. They did. They knew it, they said it, they wrote it time and again. The hope planted there like a seed in the ground was that if we keep watering that seed, that it will grow and we will get to this ideal, but we'll never get there unless we hold it up, which is why they were so sure in the drafting of the fundamental documents of the country not to enshrine in perpetuity slavery. Kevin, since this is... Probably the most heated
1: conversation that this country is having right now. Do you have any particular book that you would recommend or just authors that we could follow, journalist pieces that have answered maybe to claims made in the 1619 Project, like things that you would recommend?
0: Yes. So there are some really good books out there. So first I would read, I think it's worth reading the New York Times' series so you know what's in it and then read some of the responses. There was a response by some historians to it in a letter to the editor that's very short and worth reading. There's a longer treatment, a couple of longer treatments in essay style. Well, the same author did an essay in a book. That's Phil Magnus, who's a historian. He did a really good job both in essay and book form in responding to this in a scholarly, well-documented way. Lucas Morell, Who's a professor at Washington and Lee University has also responded by essay. So there have been some good and vigorous defenses of Lincoln and the founding that have come through this process. But I really think this is the fundamental divide there starts and is most prominent with race, but is evident in other questions, economics and sexism, other questions like that. And that is whether the resources of the regime, of the United States, which is characterized by the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. So does the governmental form encapsulated by the Declaration and the Constitution have adequate resources to deal with the problems of today, or do we need a revolution? Because those are the options.
1: Right. Well, okay. So then we get to the four divide, and I would introduce it by just saying that when I moved to Texas, somebody told me that God is always on the table (laughs) and the fourth division is about God, but like in what way?
0: Yeah. So I think this one follows very closely the previous two, particularly the last one. So it's related in a way to 1619 versus 1776, because the God question is that the moral order that forms the background or maybe it's better maybe the better metaphor is the foundation upon which our constitutional order is built presumes a religious people our founders said this this should not be controversial and which is not to say that we shouldn't be tolerant of atheism and our atheist friends no i i pray for them right i want the best for them and i want to be friends with them because they have many other great qualities they're just wrong about this really important thing Aside from that, I think the God controversy here is that our order, our Constitution's understanding and our Declaration's understanding of the world presumes God, and it presumes that God exists. And you can see this worked out in Lincoln as well. So throughout our history, you can see this worked out. But Lincoln,
1: what yeah, Lincoln who died on a Good Friday, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, an example of this, so let's spell it out in some detail, right? The, our Declaration of Independence says that all men are created equal, and that sort of trips off our tongues as Americans because we memorize this as schoolchildren, and maybe it's time to go back and rethink that. Because in what sense are we really all equal? Well, it, it can't be athletically, because Lord knows I'm no Tiger Woods with my golf game, right? And it can't be height, and it can't be strength and it can't be speed, and it can't be intelligence, and it can't be artistic ability, and it can't be any of these things. We know there's an enormous variety of human skill and ability. So what then is the sense in which we are all equal? It is a moral sense. Well, what is the basis of that moral sense? Well, our Declaration of Independence says it's that we're all created equal and endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it seems rather clear there that what's being referenced, what's operating in the background, is this biblical understanding that all men bear the image of God within them. And that that is, that is the origin of our equality. Because in every other sense, it's a fiction. The only sense in which it's real, in which our equality with one another is a moral sense, and the basis of that moral sense is theological. As much as our regime doesn't require that we profess fidelity to any particular religious creed, right? you don't have to be an Episcopalian or a Catholic or a Baptist. You're free to be a Muslim or a Jew or a Hindu. What it does require, I think, intellectually is that you assent to a form of government which itself requires that there actually be a God. Thank you, Dr. Stewart. This is fascinating as a
1: conclusion of what the divide is about. And is, if I just may rephrase it the way I understand it, is that something in the back of our mind, if we want to be good citizens of this country, is something in the back of our mind is always going to tell me that the person that I disagree the most is still my brother.
0: Well, that's right. I think that's one of the implications. So it would be natural for someone to say, okay, fine, Kevin, so what? I think that's a huge part of the so what, is that the imago dei, right, the image of God, being impressed within each human soul, means not only that we are all morally equal, but that every human being is of infinite worth, that every human being is my brother and sister in a very real way. And so as much as I might disagree with them, it always has to be disagreement tempered by this more fundamental reality. And that part of the God problem that our country faces, as you can see with the antagonism on both the left and the right, by the way, is this loss of the sense of brotherhood and sisterhood among human beings, which I don't mean any kind of hippie, right, 60s way, but rather, I think it was Ross Douthat who said, if you didn't like the religious right, wait till you meet the post-religious right.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And you're right in saying it's not a hippie thing, but if we talk about human dignity and about fundamental human rights internationally proclaimed, we must believe in something such as human dignity. I want to thank you, Kevin, for this most interesting podcast episode that we just recorded And I want to thank you for the seminar that you offered to the students. I hope you're going to do something more in the next semester and the ones to come because you're certainly one of the most valuable voices we have here. I want to close with a challenge to our audience and just suggest that, as you mentioned, that maybe that we don't know anyone that voted differently from us. That just, you know, for the next time you listen to one of our podcasts, there, there is at least one new friend you made that doesn't think like you do. I think this is something we should all work more on so that that divide gets a little narrower instead of getting broader and broader. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Kevin, again, and see you all for the next episode.
0: Great pleasure. Thanks, everyone. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends, Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.